After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Midianites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men, and told, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming to you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazeon, Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judea. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it, and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benani, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jerul. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the, before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Koraites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they came out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as he went before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Amnon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ed, and um, hello again, everyone. Um, Before I start, let's, let's pray. Pray with me. God, you are good, you are holy, and in control. Please have mercy on me and on our church this morning as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, my family went camping way up north. And although we've camped together for many years, and although she tries very hard, my wife has never really been a fan of the whole camping and sleeping in tents and outdoors thing. Well, on this trip, we, uh, we brought an, along an old tent, which was clearly nearing the end of its lifespan. And on this trip, for whatever reason, I decided not to put up a very large tarp like I usually do. Well, a day after setting up, the sky turned ominously green. You know, that, that kind of green that you see in the Wizard of Oz, the kind of green that signals a wicked storm or even a tornado may be coming. Well, pensively, that night we went to bed. At midnight, I woke up to the sound of wind, which gradually became more and more forceful, and I started to hear rain on our rickety tent. And soon it became louder and louder and louder until I finally felt a drip on my head. I ignored it. But then another drip came, and another and another. And suddenly, I was a little worried. Hoping this would just, just go away, I, I turned over to, to try sleep, but instead, I was met by two wide-open eyes of my wife with a piercing look that said two things. One, this is all your fault. Why didn't you put up the stupid tarp? And two, what are you going to do about this situation? Well, long story short, the inside of our tent became like a dishwasher, and Brian, Heidi, wet sleeping bags, three crying kids crammed into our parents' tent for a long, stormy night. You know, I I tell that story not to cast shade on my wife, who, by the way, sacrificially went camping with me again this year. Thank you, Heidi. I love you very much. But I tell it because it gives me a glimpse of the way that Jehoshaphat may have felt in our passage this morning. You see, he was faced with a much bigger army, a much bigger storm than my so-called near-death camping experience. And he had not just a family, but an entire nation looking to him and asking, so what are you going to do about this situation? 
You see, King Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat is, is facing a great horde, our text says. That, that is a very large army that threatens to just obliterate his people, the people of Judah. So for context, we should actually read 2 Chronicles 17 to 19, but to keep this sermon short, I'm going to catch up very, very quickly. Jehoshaphat led Judah through a reformation of sorts. He, he encouraged the people to turn back to the Lord, removing high places and Asherah poles, and teaching them to, to learn and read from the book of the law. And so God blessed him, making Judah more and more powerful with forts and cities and experienced fighters. In fact, in, in chapter 17, it lists all these fighters, and they amount to well over a million people. You see, Jehoshaphat is riding high with wealth, and resources and a powerful army. He is doing all the right things. He is saying all the right things. He knows all the right things. And yet, if you look at verse 3, it says he was afraid. Now the tables are turned. The odds are stacked against him. And he is the one who needs to decide how to act, how to handle this overwhelming situation. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. And some of the people came to him and, and said, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the, from the other side of the Dead Sea, is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat has not one, not two, but three armies from across the Dead Sea, forming a, a coalition of sorts in order to wipe his people out. And for context here, while I couldn't find the exact size of this vast army, um, commentators say that the fact that it is repeated four times throughout the text indicates the significance of the size. And when the messengers say that the army was already in Hazazon Tamar, that's about 50 kilometers southeast of Jerusalem, or about one day's journey away. So that's like a massive army camped just outside of, let's say, Kempville ready to come up tomorrow and obliterate Ottawa. Can you see it? And you can, can you see now why verse 3 says, Jehoshaphat was afraid? Have you felt in that situation before where you felt completely overwhelmed and felt afraid? You know, maybe you've been fortunate. It's been years since you felt this way. But maybe it was in the past 18 months. Maybe it was this week or maybe even today. What was the great multitude that you, you felt in your life when you faced in that situation? Is it COVID? Is it your finances? The government maybe? Maybe your family? On some on Sundays, maybe your kids? Maybe it was an impossible work assignment, or maybe, maybe it's your health today. Whatever that was, or, or what it is today, even today, I think this passage teaches us a God-honoring way to, to respond to overwhelming situations when we simply don't know what to do. And so today I'd like to look at three parts of Jehoshaphat's response to a crisis. First, recalibrate in prayer. Second, stand firm. Third, worship. Recalibrate in prayer, stand firm, worship. So here we go. Recalibrate in prayer. You know, I was, I was originally planning to start this point by reminding you of how important it is to immediately seek God in prayer. But I think you know that already. In fact, I think it's in times of crisis like this when we're most likely to seek God. Rather, what's, what's maybe more striking about this prayer 
is that in the midst of this crisis, Jehoshaphat spends about 80% of, of it declaring who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised before he actually gets to what he needs. Look, look at it with me. First, there's a God you are statement. Verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Second, there's a, a God you have done statement. Verse 7, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the, to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And then he, he paraphrases from Solomon this, this dedication prayer for the temple. And then third, you have there's this God you have promised statement. Verse 11, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. There's the promise. And even when Jehoshaphat finally gets to his request, Oh God, oh our God, will you not execute judgment on them? You'll see it's framed as a rhetorical question, a declaration of what he will do. So why is this important, you say? Well, for two reasons. First, as the Westminster Catechism summarizes, our chief purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So why not do that in our prayers as well? But secondly... When we do this, it, it recalibrates our position in reference to God. You know, maybe some of you remember those old way scales. Not, not, not a digital one, but one of those ones with a spinny wheel. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe the 35 plus in the crowd know what I'm talking about. But if you have, you'll remember that sometimes those way scales would start with plus one or minus one pounds. And every so often, you need to calibrate it back to zero. Well, imagine for a second if you started that scale at minus 10 pounds and then you stepped on it. If you're like me, you'd probably feel pretty good about yourself, right? All right, donut day, Susie Q, here we come, right? But if you're like me and you calibrate that scale back down to zero and then you step on it, suddenly you're feeling pretty humbled and you're stuck to eating carrots again. Well, in the same way, when we start and spend a majority of our prayer with statements of God you are, God you have done, and God you have promised, it lifts him higher and higher in our minds and it brings us closer and closer to zero. And by humbling ourselves, our dependence then shifts from ourselves to God. And this leads Jehoshaphat to the spiritual crescendo of his prayer in verse 12. Read with me. For, for we are powerless against this great army that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I know of a church whose elders have this verse written on the wall of the room that they meet in. And I'd like to tell you a secret this morning. Listen carefully. The elders of Resurrection Church, we often don't know what we should be doing either. I hope you knew that already. I'm sure you do. And if there's anything that has taught us this, it's the last year and a half. We should probably have this verse wallpapered on the Resurrection Church office. Sorry, Ben, that would be grotesque. But on our t-shirts, on our phones, and any other place where we should conceivably can put it in our face. 
Just because we are in a position of leadership, leadership like King Jehoshaphat, that does not make us any more wise or righteous or better decision makers. Leaders are just as dependent on the Lord as anyone else. Remember, as a leader, Jehoshaphat was doing all the right things. He was saying all the right things. He knew all the right things. He had incredible resources and was riding high. He was the leader, the guy who was supposed to have all the answers. And yet, here he was, in front of his entire nation of Judah, completely humbled, crying out to God for help. Imagine for a second if Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau or Doug Ford or pick whatever celebrity leader you want, imagine one of them got up at a conference or a new scrum and when asked about what they were going to do in response to a pandemic or a financial crisis or even a war, instead of a, a nice 30-point plan, you know, a comprehensive plan, they simply declined and they stated they were powerless and they didn't know what to do. Can you imagine the upset that would cause in the media? So what a fitting verse it is for godly leadership like King Jehoshaphat and church leadership to declare and remind ourselves and humble ourselves, confessing that we are totally reliant on a God who is so much greater than we remember, let alone comprehend. But this is, isn't just for leadership. It's for the community too, for all of you. Check out verse 13. It says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And notice how Jehoshaphat uses the plural tense in verse 12. It says, for we are powerless against this great army that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You see, although Judah is looking to Jehoshaphat, this vast army is a communal problem. And this is a communal prayer. And look, while there may be many, many problems in our lives that we face individually, there are also many that we face together as a community too. So what about you, Resurrection Church? What vast armies do we face together as a church community? What things should we be praying for in our homes during family worship, in our small groups, and in our services? You know, one of the things that drew uh, my wife Heidi and I to Resurrection Church was its mission and its vision of seeing the people of Hindenburg spiritually renewed. And without question, I think the, the past 18 months have challenged our ability to do that. And that's something that worries me, and hopefully it's something that worries you too. And look, as Frankie said, working in a hospital environment and dealing with COVID type stuff almost every day, I am one of the last people to suggest that we simply ignore it and what's been required in the last 18 months. But I also recognize the collateral damage it has caused to our ministry to Hindenburg and probably your families, not to mention our church. The strain on the people of Hindenburg that I see walking around, the isolation, the, the mental health effects, the divisions, the loneliness, the doubts, worries, and fears. And so I think we can cry out, God, our little church is powerless against this vast army. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
So church, if we're facing a vast army today, if you are facing a vast army today, let's recalibrate our position to God in prayer, humbling ourselves and putting our eyes on him. So that's the first point, recalibrate in prayer. Now secondly, stand firm, stand firm. You know, thankfully, our passage doesn't end at Jehoshaphat's prayer. God knows our problems, and he responds. And here's the other thing. He often responds in an unexpected way. While Jehoshaphat is praying, oh, sorry, uh, check out verse 14. Uh, come with me here. In the spirit of the Lord, it says, came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah. So while Jehoshaphat is praying, the people are standing outside, and the Spirit of the Lord comes on Jehaziel, meaning that what he says is prophetic. It is a direct message from God. And here's God's message. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And I want you now to notice something really neat here. In the last point, we talked about the vast armies that we faced in our individual lives and the ones that we face as a church. And here, when God responds, he shares the exact details of Jehoshaphat's problem. When these armies will come, where they will go, what they're going to do, the exact details. And in a strange way, I think this should comfort us. You see, God knew the details of Jehoshaphat's problem even better than he did. And if God knew the exact details of Jehoshaphat and Judah's problem, he certainly knows the same for yours, even better than you do. He knows the pain, he knows the worry, and the anxiety that you feel in the midst of that problem. He knows the circumstances. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, he knows the precise details of every single moment. And he knows it for you. He knows it for me. He knows it for Resurrection Church. And he knows it for Hindenburg. And if God intimately knows the precise details for all time, how much more will he not also know the details of the solution? Not only that, but because he knows the exact details of your problem, even better than you do, sometimes, or often, the solution is not going to be the one that we expect or the one that we want because he is going to give us the one that we need. You want proof? Look at verse 17. Look at it with me. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. When I read this passage for about the third time, I finally caught the significance of these verses and it sent tingles down my spine. Did you see it? Look at it again with me. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, 
and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Jehoshaphat and Judah, they're, they're vastly outnumbered. They are facing a problem so much bigger than they can handle. And so God intercedes and he delivers them with a solution where he does all the work and they simply need to watch and stand firm. Friends, I know each of you is probably carrying into church today overwhelming problems, vast armies in your life, and the ones that we face as a church. And yet, there is an even greater problem. You see, the biggest, most vast army that you will ever face in your life, it's your sin. This is where I start losing it. <laughs> and so God said to us, he said, I love you. You don't need to fight this battle because you can't. The problem is it's far, far bigger than you can handle. The army, it's too great. You, you are completely outnumbered. In fact, it's growing every day. But he also said to us, I love you. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. I've got this. This battle is not yours, it's mine. And so he sent his son. You see, God doesn't just intimately understand the details of our life's biggest problem. He doesn't just give us a solution, but he's given us a solution that we never ever could have expected, the one that we need. Who would send their own son to die for someone else's problem? Not only that, but as Josephette says, the God of all heaven, who rules over all people and over all time, who has power and might so that none is able to withstand him. This God came down from that lofty, powerful place to earth and humbled himself for us to defeat our sin. Church, I know this is easy for me to preach. It's not actually, but it's still incredibly, incredibly hard when you're in the thick of it, right? And so we'll still ask ourselves after we leave this service today, but God, what about this? And what about that? Do you even know, do you even understand? Do you understand how difficult it is to be alone as a parent? Do you know the physical pain that I'm feeling? Do you understand the emotional hurt that I'm experiencing? The friendships that have been damaged? The addiction that I just can't shake? And the answer is still yes. You see, because he has defeated our life's biggest problem, how much more will he not take care of all the other much smaller ones? Romans 8.32 echoes this when it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so, friends, even though it can be very, very hard to see sometimes, and very, very hard to do, stand firm. Because the battle is not ours, but God's. He knows your problems, and he knows what you need.
All right. So when we're overwhelmed by a vast army, we're encouraged to recalibrate in prayer, to stand firm, and finally, third point here, to worship. Hang on, you say, worship? In moments of crisis, when everything is crumbling around me, you want me to worship? Look at verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat cried and said, Hear me, Judah, inhabitants of, Ju of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. Verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Wow. There is something powerful that is going on here with worship when we sing and when we praise to the Lord. As they're heading into a, 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 towards an army that's three times, let's say, their size, they're not drawing up their swords and their shields, but they're worshiping. In fact, Jehoshaphat is so confident that God is going to deliver them, he puts the choir at the front of the army. The most vulnerable group of the army is at the front. They were not carrying any weapons or swords or shields, but flutes and harps and tambourines. Not great fighting instruments, right? But there seems to be something powerful that happens while we worship. John Piper describes communal singing as not just a response to the grace of God, but also as a means of grace. And I think in a mysterious way that I, I, I can't really fully comprehend, I think he's right. You see, worship is not just something we do after the, our problems are resolved, but through them. Because the results in our text that you'll read is that as the choir sings, the Lord does his work of setting an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, and routing them. Church, as you march through life facing armies, are you worshiping your way through them too? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 encourages us with this. It says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so, when you get the diagnosis, worship. When the pain is unbearable, worship. When your kids are driving you nuts, worship. When your marriage is on the verge of collapse, when you struggle against addiction, when you are worried for your family, worship. Okay, I'm going to conclude. But before I do, I want to finish by making sure you, you don't walk away from this sermon thinking that we just need to be more like Jehoshaphat. Although Jehoshaphat did many things right, he messed up a lot too. In fact, right after this passage, he, at the end of the chapter, he forms an ill-advised trading alliance with a, with a bad king from Israel. Right after this. And the Lord wrecks his ships as a result. Like Jehoshaphat, we're going to make many, many mistakes. Even though the greatest battle in our life has been defeated, and we know the things we ought to do, 
we're going to mess up time and time again. And so there are going to be seasons where our prayer life and our walk with the Lord is, are, they're going to be strong. But others, where we struggle with sin and we're going to feel distant from him. But 850 years later, from the line of Jehoshaphat would come another, even greater king. Unlike Jehoshaphat, though, this king would serve God perfectly. But he too would face a vast army with not just a nation, but all people of all time looking to him and asking, so what are you going to do about this situation? See, he too was overwhelmed. Matthew 26 says the king was troubled and overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. He too cried out to the father three times, in fact, with his face to the ground, even pleading for a way out, even asking for him to take the cup of suffering from him, if possible. He too sang hymns of worship and praise, but this time, God did, the, God did not rescue him. Instead, he did the opposite. He turned his face from him. So this time, King, Je King Jesus marched into the battlefield in surrender with his hands in the air, nailed to a cross. In essence, saying, I'm the one you want. Take me. And this time, the battle ended not with cries of praise and celebration, but with his cry of it is finished. Let's pray. Father, God in heaven, ruler of all, in your hands are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. God, you have done great, great things for your church, for your people, and you've promised us something so great that we can't even fully comprehend it. God, forgive us for our lack of dependence on you. Forgive us for our lack of faith and humility. God, this morning, many, if not all of us today, face a vast army in our lives, and so does our church. We want to serve you during these challenging times, God, but we just don't know how. So we cry out now. We don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. Thank you, God, that you sent your son to defeat the greatest battle in our lives, our sin. And so we look to you for now for all the other ones that we face, knowing that you, with complete confidence, that you love us. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.